Hey folks, just a heads up before we get into today's episode, um, we do touch briefly on the issue of like child abuse and things like that. Uh, not in any sort of graphic detail, but certainly use your best judgment, um, in the context. It's a topic. Of, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a topic in regard to, uh, this issue of what we're talking about today of like LGBTQ queer coding and media, that kind of thing. So use your best judgment. Hey folks, welcome to Office Hours and what may or may not be the 50th episode of, <laughs> of our program. Uh, Barry and I were just debating whether or not that's the case. Either way, um, so today we're going to be talking about uh, the issue of narrative shorthands, stereotyping, and dealing with the sort of mindsets of a dominant audience. Uh, and that sounds a little convoluted, but here's what I mean. When you watch a piece of media, whether it's a TV or a TV show or a movie or something like that, or you read you know, a piece of media or you listen to an audiobook, whatever it happens to be, you are inevitably um, engaging in a construction of reality that is yeah. the intersection of that story plus your cognitive processes, which your cognitive processes are very likely influenced by dominant norms, whether that's dominant norms of overall mainstream society or the dominant norms of your particular of your particular cultural group or whatever it happens to be. And this can create some tension and uh, honestly, a little bit of discomfort. Um, uh, depending yeah, on I how mean, from an industry it. side of it, I, I remember listening to a screenwriter once say, that like the the key to good screenwriting is to construct something that feels real in spite of the limitations of the medium which cannot allow it to be real it can never be real it but your goal is to create something that feels real enough that people will buy into it and believe it even if it's fiction even if it's mm -hmm. fantasy that like you need to construct a, a world in which the audience could say yeah this is believable enough this references my reality well enough that i understand it that it feels yeah like i can i can trans my transport myself into this in some way right and and because storytelling is inherently collapsed right right there's so you much just that we cannot about. put reality in it you can't Absolutely. And so this gets into narrative shorthands that become stereotypes um, because we use certain things to signify uh, character traits or world elements, things like that, that are supposed to give us, you know, a broader understanding in a very short amount of time that is very economic for the um, medium that we're that we're using. For yeah. example, the issue of problematic queer coding. Uh, and just as a preface, uh, neither Barry nor I are members of the LGBTQ community. Um, this is something that I'm looking at from a more academic lens. Uh, some of my research touches on this. Uh, so please bear that in mind as we move forward. Um, yeah. The case in particular I'm talking about is Batman and Robin, uh, specifically Batman and um, Dick Grayson. Uh, as they were originally depicted in the early 1940s, which has often been a subject of debate in terms of the queer coding involved and what are the implications and that kind of thing. And before we go any further, I want to define three terms for people um, so that, you know, we have this in mind as we go forward. The first Great. is the first is homosexuality, which we understand to be same sex romantic involvement, right? 
a same-sex romantic attraction that may be of a physical nature, it may be of a uh, emotional nature, but the idea of being romantically and sexually attracted to someone of the same sex or gender expression. Then we have the idea of um, homoeroticism, which is when you have uh, multiple bodies, maybe two, three, or however many, multiple bodies depicted in a visual way that is that has an implication of sexuality. Now yeah. the characters, those illustrated in this, um, in this way may or may not be actually sexually attracted to each other. A great right. example of homoeroticism between heterosexual males or uh, involving heterosexual males is the movie Top Gun and the mm -hmm. beach volleyball scene. Uh, kids ask your parents if you don't know. Um, <laughs> but basically you have all these super ripped, you know, in shape guys who are visually, this is meant to convey an aesthetic of sexuality, but right. they do not, at least in the context of the narrative and what we understand, experience sexual attraction towards each other. Right. Right. And comic right. books are rife with this. We just talked about in one of my classes, um, uh, we studied, uh, for the lesson, uh, Uncanny X-Men number 169 and 170 where the X-Men go underground to meet the Morlocks for the first time who are mutants who are horribly disfigured and they at some point Storm gets into a knife fight a, uh, a duel for leadership with the head of the Morlocks who is Callisto and she uh, is disfigured in the sense that she has some scars on her face and she has an eye patch but that like there are some moments where there might be a little like framed in a homoerotic way right so yeah. but that's yeah. the idea and, here. and in general <clears throat> having um erotic imagery that is you know implied or or uh overtly uh portrayed in media is not new right no. like that's not that's not a, a today's day and age sort of a thing like that's been going on uh for a long time in literature as well as in in visual media as well mm -hmm. and oh, yeah. and homoerotic uh sort of depictions is nothing new either that's that's not a a, a woke thing of today's day and age either yeah. that's that's been going on that it, that's it, that's been a thing it predates uh the sexual revolution of the 1960s by millennia like yeah. it's <laughs> it's it's been around for a minute right yeah, yeah. um so anyway uh, and then the third term is homosociality. So homosociality is same-sex relationships that are not of a romantic nature, a romantic or a sexual nature. There is no yeah, okay. attraction in that way. There is attraction in the way that we are attracted to our friends. There are people we enjoy being around, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but homosociality does not have the specifically does not have the romantic or sexual component to it. And so I yeah. bring up those things to say this um, in the modern um iteration of like sidekicks for example if we yeah, were to talk today's about today's like, day and age today's day and age if we were talking about sidekicks and superheroes for example there's often a lot of discourse around whether or not they are coded in a way that would make them queer queer in the sense of uh being lesbian gay bisexual trans something along those lines mm -hmm. right and that there could be a relationship between them i mean we talked with uh, uh shanna gilkison um a few months ago about you know fanfic and slash fiction and that kind of thing and shipping and all that sort of stuff um so that so like implying or reading relationships between characters that may or may not be in relationships is a very common thing. And and this often, unfortunately, has been cultivated through a mindset of homophobia going back to the 1940s. So um, sidekicks were introduced into superhero narratives as a way of softening the characters. Right. 
So like early 1940s Batman, absolutely out here just murdering people. <laughs> um, and at some point saying it's better that they're dead, right? Like that's a yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, it And then early on, like the creators were like, okay, he needs like a sidekick. He needs a kid sidekick in order to yeah. like soften this guy. It's the same thing with Captain America. Captain America was from the get go uh, started off with Bucky. Uh, with mm -hmm. James Buchanan Barnes as a child. He was a literal kid. Actually, I think the story was that uh, Bucky was an orphan whose father was in the military. And so he became like the camp mascot where Steve Rogers was serving. Right. Gotcha. And so uh, but he also joins in as like a like a, a secret sidekick helping Steve Rogers, which I forget who wrote it into canon. But it is a thing that like Bucky as a child was a murdering lunatic like <laughs> like cap kills people as necessary bucky was like he was a super soldier at 11 just let's do it yeah murdering grown men who were nazis <laughs> like, right um it, there, there is a weird amount of bloodthirst in in the early bucky <laughs> depictions <laughs> which which they then i think under the ed brubaker run and i forget, forget exactly when that was but they uh one of his runs of captain america they changed they aged him up they made him into like you know steve was like 19 or 20 or something like that yeah. or, eight, or 18 and then bucky was either the same age or maybe a little bit older a little bit younger but basically around the same age right but i mean it, it scans because it's like he's a child soldier basically yeah I, yeah I don't know how much experience the original writers when they were making those depictions knew about the lives of child soldiers but what little i know it seems to you know that works out well <laughs> bloodthirst of sorts right um goodness gracious when you're raised in a hellish environment yes. you become a little hellion right right um i think it was an ed brubaker run where like cap says something along the lines of he's like you know i was the public symbol but but uh but bucky was the wet works guy like he was oh gosh <laughs> he, he was the navy seal um Jeez. so anyway uh, going back to this idea of like they introduce sidekicks in order to soften the image of these characters. But then you have this problem of like grown men in spandex running around with little kids in spandex. And there is a scene, I forget where exactly in the early Batman comics, um, but there is a scene where like uh, Bruce and uh, and uh, Dick Grayson are sleeping in the same bed. Right. Mm. Which as a parent is a thing that happens. Right. Like right. your kids will try to sneak into your bed. Right. Uh, they will when they feel like they have the agency, like try to crawl into your bed, that kind of thing. But because it was a older man and adoptee, because uh, Dick Grayson was his ward. Um, yeah. It had certain subtexts and yeah, certain right. undertones. Right. Um, and combined with the fact that I think at the time, Bruce Wayne did not have a romantic interest. He was not romantically involved with Catwoman or anyone mm -hmm. else, I mm -hmm. think. Mm -hmm. So, which also societally ha has its implications oh, yeah. as well, right? He's like a, you give the side eye to the single man who lives by himself his entire life. Like, he's who, a confirmed bachelor. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Again, another shorthand, right? Yeah. Like it can be another shorthand for, for implying certain things, saying things without having to say things about people. Right, right. And so I think they actually made a joke about that in the Lego Batman movie. Um, oh, because <laughs> I probably <laughs> if if memory serves, because I've only seen snippets of it, I think at some point Batman goes, I'm a con I'm a confirmed bachelor. Don't you know what that means? And then someone else goes, I do. Do you know what that means? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
so yeah that yeah. The, that movie hinges on like meta commentary for its comedy as yeah. i understand it's a very smart movie again i've only seen pieces of it but um but yeah so anyway so that is an example let's take it at its face value right of yeah. uh of the intimacy between uh bruce wayne and dick grayson and it is yeah. homosociality right unfortunately if we take it at that face value uh, unfortunately, it did exist in the 1940s and in the 50s and uh, the rampant homophobia that was at the time. And, of course, there's the, you know, hallmark book, uh, Seduction of the Innocent by Frederick, uh, by Frederick mm-hmm. Wortham, uh, who was a, a psychologist. Uh, and he was arguing that, you know, this is a part of advancing a aberrant uh, sexuality, that this was, you know, part of the. Um, this is what the gays do. And I'm being very ham fisted here, but that was kind of right. the, the implication right. he was making. Right. Uh, that like, no, nah, this is like, this is grooming children for sexual abuse and that kind of thing. And right. so whether or not it was ever intended that way. And I would per- prefer to think that the authors that like Bill Kane and Bob Finger, uh, were not trying to imply that Bruce Wayne was a child abuser. Um, the, the audience to, that received it may have interpreted it in that way. Right. Right. And so then over the years, you fast forward to the emotional intimacy that exists between um, Wayne and and Grayson. Uh, And now in their current iteration, I think I'm just going off of the recent comics that I've read. uh, Bruce Wayne appears to be in like his uh, mid 40s, I want to say. And Dick Grayson is clearly in his 20s. Uh, And so while that would be. That would be the kind of uh, romantic age gap that would cause concern. Um, it would still be between consenting adults, right? Sure. Uh, so that again has to exist. If we, if it were queer coded, it would have to exist in this context of um, the homophobia and problematic mindsets and misconceptions about the LGBTQ, LGBTQ community. Yeah. Right. right. So even if it's not intended that way, it becomes filtered through that lens as mm-hmm. a result of all the other stereotypes that we consume from other media that tell us right. these are narrative shorthands for uh, same-sex relationships and that kind of thing. Right, 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 right. Yeah, that was sense. that was a really that 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 idea was really prevalent. I I grew up uh, as a Boy Scout, right, and mm. I remember very poignantly. I think I was around thirteen or fourteen years old, near the end of my time in Boy Scouts. But there was there was a heated debate about uh, the Boy Scout policy on allowing gay men to be scout leaders, right? And the homophobia was rampant in that. the The, the main argument was we have to protect our young men. Why would we ever allow a gay man be a, a leader in this organization? Because you know what they do yeah. when they have the chance to, oh, yeah. right? That equating equating pedophilia with homosexuality, that those are part of the same deal. And that right. ultimately became like reinforced the policy, the exclusionary policy that the, the Boy Scouts had at the time. Um, Did yeah, you? It won out because of that. Did you listen to that Behind the Bastards series on the Boy Scouts? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And the master yeah. list that they kept of all oh, the yeah. people who were abusing children. Good. Oh day. yeah. Yep. Anyway. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, luckily, I, I luckily I, I uh, you know, that was not part of my experience, my sure. personal experience, and and I I don't. I I was fortunate to be a part of a troop that that did not end up having those those problems. Right. Yeah. Thankfully. Uh, but geez, Louise. Oh like, yeah. 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 
it you know this the to to your, that point that uh, this policy that the the Boy Scouts adopted based off of this homophobia and conflating pedophilia with homophobia mm-hmm. did not save them oh, yeah. from rampant pedophilia being part of and prote- a protected part of the Boy Scouts. Right, right. Um, and had been at that point for a very long time. Um, right. And, and these stereotypes have long existed, uh, and they've been a part of demonizing the, the LGBTQ community. Um, so, so yeah, it's, and it's really unfortunate. And so then when you look at like modern iterations of the relationship between uh, Steve Rogers and Bucky Barnes and the deep emotional connection that they share. And at some points they have implied or even s- said in overt terms that like Bucky had a crush on Steve, uh, or things like that. Um, even when they try to do positive representation of, uh, you know, mm-hmm. bisexuality or being gay or anything like that or being lesbian for that matter, they then unfortunately fall into these tropes. So then in this narrative, uh, in this type of storytelling, because homophobia has just saturated this medium and most mediums of storytelling, homosociality becomes conflated with homosexuality. Mm-hmm. And because there is the prevalence, uh, the prevalence of homoeroticism in comics, like they just it creates this um this amplifying effect right where if you have two men who are emotionally connected they must be in a relationship together or there is right. some sort of inherent attraction and right. there is and there we would benefit greatly as a society um from positive representations of same sex relationships mm-hmm. unfortunately those representations uh must battle uphill against these previously existing you know mindsets and this atmosphere that we have right right reinforcing the the need for for positive representation and the need for frequent positive representation right Mm -hmm. that it it is important to have these portrayals um but it is important to ensure that they are careful and and you know that they take into account the historical and current cultural context that these representations are going to live in yeah and so even referring back to like what we talked about before in a previous episode with uh, John Kent uh, coming mm-hmm. out as bisexual or Tim Drake coming out yeah. as bisexual, um, who are, John, for those who don't know, John Kent is the current Superman in the DC Comics and Tim Drake uh, is one of a member of the Bat family, one of the Robins. Um, how they're handled narratively is going to be tough because the writers, hopefully who are from that community, uh, yeah. who have that kind of experience have to thread the needle between what becomes stereotypical and what doesn't. And unfortunately comics are rife with stereotype and camp and the hyper exaggeration of reality. So like, how do you make it more grounded? You can, you absolutely can. There are some great examples of grounded comics that deal with very real subject matter in very detailed ways and very complex ways. Um, But it's something that is at times lost in superhero narratives. Yeah, and I think this is a, a this is a good allusion to our last episode we just recorded where we talk about this conflation of or not conflation but the the duality of um you know corporate interests and capitalism and representation and how representation today and and how it manifests itself is messy but can be a positive thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my question in regards to what we've just outlined in terms of shorthand and stereotype is how do we know when we've come across a positive representation, right? Like, 
stereotypes if we're aware of them and understand their 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 impact on society and culture at large can make us really uncomfortable but also seeing representations that we're not used to can also make us uncomfortable so like how do, how do we go navigate that as, as uh consumers and how do we how do we know what we're seeing when we see it so this is one of those things where I have to acknowledge that from an academic perspective, I'm not well versed, uh, but I can speak just as a person. Yeah. Um, I, I figure you're still one. So yeah, for the most part, you haven't part. sold your soul entirely. And t- no, not until I'm offered a tenure track job. When I'm offered a tenure track job, I will do, I will sell my soul uh, and compromise my moral fiber um, because I desperately want the security. No, um, yeah. I'm kidding. If I anyone's hiring, say that, <laughs> it sounds like, I mean, Selling your soul is the road to tenure track, right? That's yes. Not, <laughs> that's I think that's a part of the tenure clock. You have to have X amount of publications and also like sell a certain percentage of your soul in the process. Yes. Yeah. Right? yeah. How uh, much it. of your soul have you drained? Uh, not enough. Okay. Yeah. Well, you still got work to do. <laughs> tenure review board. We can still see there's the light of hope in your eyes. Clearly, yeah. you're not up to par. <laughs> um, anyway, so I'll give the example of The Eternals. Um, have okay. you seen that movie yet? I have not seen it yet. Okay. It's on Disney+. Plus. Um, and it's a, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really good. It has, um, one of the most diverse casts, I think the most diverse cast in any MCU movie at this point. Mm. Uh, I think 10 lead characters, uh, and they do a really interesting job of, of juggling them and that kind of thing. And, uh, there is one character, uh, Fastos, who is, his name is a variation. Cause the idea is that the Eternals came to earth at the beginning of civilization and their presence has inspired. You can see their sort of fingerprints over human history, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. and so he is an engineer. He is a creator and Fastos is a reference to Hephaestus. Uh, and so he has a husband. Um, he has a husband and a child. And so I won't spoil too much of the movie, but, um, Basically, the Eternals spend a few hundred years doing their own thing. The threats they've been fighting have basically passed. And then there's, of course, something that happens that requires that they all gather together again. And there's a, you know, impending apocalypse, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And Fastos has a life. And he is with his husband and their child. I think their child is adopted as opposed to being through like IVF or something like that. I'm not Mm -hmm. entirely sure. I don't know that they go much into it. Um, and Fastos is like, no, like, I'm not, I'm not rallying. Uh, I got a good deal here. I have someone I love. Uh, I have a child. I, I'm a present parent. I like, no, I have found meaning thousands of years on this earth. And I have found what it means to like, have a a meaningful life. And that hit me that that absolutely you know slayed me and not because i have any sort of like great call to arms for an impending apocalypse or doom sure. um although i and i do understand that's a part of the tenure review process is have you thought <laughs> of an apocalypse i'm afraid right. i have not um save the world yeah and have you done it at this institution because if you did it at a previous institution that doesn't count Forget towards this. we right? gotta it's, start all over again right yeah. um <laughs> but 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 honestly as someone who engages in any kind of like public uh, intellectual humanity, uh, humanities work, or as someone who has urgent needs, whether that's, you know, late night, um, work sessions or, um, anything related to like local politics or things like that. There's always that judgment of like, do I spend this time with my kid? Do I take time away from my family to do these things? Right. 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 And so I was like, man, I get it. Like, I'm not going to fault you. He does obviously eventually end up, you know, helping save the world, but I, I, I get that 
that resonates with me in a meaningful way. Um, yeah. And yeah. so I would suggest that that is dimensional, that is authentic, and that uh, certainly his relationship with a same-sex uh, partner is not something that I resonate with in particular, but I would point out um, as a Mexican-American, um, my parents' relationship, uh, my mother being white, my father being Mexican, has been stigmatized. Uh, yeah. I certainly grown up in an environment where that was the case. Um, and as a... Uh, person who is, you know, brown and light skinned, but still identified often as an other, uh, with a, uh, white woman, uh, and having a child that, you know, appears very white. I'm aware, even if no one's ever said it to me, I'm aware of the cultural stigmas that are associated with that. Um, so while it's not the same, like I can hold my hand's wife, I can, I can hold my wife's hand, excuse (laughs) me, my hand's wife. Ah, I'm not as think as you drunk I am right now. So tired. Um, I can hold my wife's hand and be confident that we might get a dirty look, maybe, but people are going to leave us alone, right? Yeah. I have a security there that someone like Fastos, uh, someone who is in a same-sex relationship, does not have. So I recognize where those boundaries are in my own experience and my ability to relate, but I, I yeah. get it on 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 a on some level. Um, and yeah, and that was that was emotionally resonant to me. Um, yeah, if that answers the question, I guess. Yeah, I don't know if it does, but it was, that was that's a good journey to go on. I think I think something that I think that's a good example of how you know they could have gone with uh, any choice to kind of qualify this character's reason for not wanting to participate in mm-hmm. the you know effort to save the world, um, and it it's this choice is just as much a political choice as it was a capitalist choice as much as it was a on the part of the writer probably also a a a pro-social choice uh, amongst all of it like all Mm -hmm. of those things as the corporation known as the walt disney Mm -hmm. company had like worked out the calculus for this particular portrayal um like it's it's all mixed in there but in the end um sometimes we get some representations that uh in spite of those many many calculations that are at play to mm-hmm. lead to a portrayal like that mm-hmm. offers us an opportunity to uh see the humanity and relate to in a human way yeah. the, uh, uh to something that is different than our own experience yeah absolutely and then and they had the couple kiss on camera there you go and yeah, and it's the we've had starting in two thousand eight. At this point, fourteen years of Marvel movies, right? Yeah, not a yeah. single same sex uh, kiss on screen or overt show of affection. And yeah, and and they did, and um, and that that moment, that dynamic, that scene has to exist against the backdrop of all the ways in which. Um, homosexuality and and lgbtq um orientations and expressions of identity uh have been attempted ham-fistedly in ways that are demonizing as well as ways that were attempting to be empowering but were not um and so it has to do a lot of heavy lifting um but yeah so i don't know and and because of that i argue that it 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 comes under greater scrutiny because of that right because it is it is so far outside the norm as simple as it was mm-hmm. it's so far outside of the norm it becomes more available and more obvious for for scrutiny right oh, yeah. it, it it becomes a, a lightning rod in itself and and 
Yeah. It's not justified. It really shouldn't be. It should be a lot easier to mm. to portray than it is. It shouldn't require a whole lot of political calculus, but mm -hmm. because of the context in which we live, it, it does. And, but the the outcome has the opportunity to be pro social in some way. It can be, and and you know, folks who would criticize it, I would strongly wonder, and I doubt they would, but I would strongly wonder if they would have the same critiques about any of Tony Stark's relationships. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> picked it on screen because uh, right. I don't think one right. of them is healthy. Maybe the one he has with his kid is about it, but I am not convinced that his relationship with Pepper Potts was at any point like what we would consider yeah, no, healthy. That's not, that's not that's not a great relationship. No, it, no, no. <laughs> There's feeling there, but often not the right kinds of feelings. And and also started off in a very problematic power dynamic. <laughs> Terrible. Uh, yeah. Terrible. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so as usual, folks, you can find me uh, on uh, Twitter and Instagram at GACruz underscore PhD uh, on TikTok at Dr. Underscore C. Um, you can please leave us a review and a rating on whatever platform you find this on. Uh, we greatly appreciate it. And if you have any questions, anything you'd like for us to talk about, uh, please email us at GACruzPhD uh, at gmail.com. <laughs>